All right, here we go. By a show of hands, how many of you have ever gotten physically lost? I'm seeing a lot of hands out there. I see those hands over there. All right, now I say physically lost because I get mentally lost sometimes too. Like I'll be in a conversation with my wife and then all of a sudden I realize it's been like 30 seconds and I have no idea what's going on. And I find myself wondering, how did I just lose focus? I mean, I was trying so hard and then I have to ask her to repeat herself and it's really embarrassing. But if I don't, then I have no way of getting my conversational like bearings back. Now, am I the only one experiencing this? How about spiritually? Do you ever find yourself questioning your spirituality? Maybe realizing your unworthiness and, and even questioning your salvation? Me too. So friends, I, I would bet that most all of us have been lost in some manner at some time or another. So let's, let's take it one step further. How many of you have ever been lost and had no earthly clue where you were actually at? I mean, try visiting a foreign country. All right, now let's do a thought experiment together. I'm sure that we all have unique experiences about getting lost, but in order for us all to get on the same page, imagine with me that we've been dropped off in a large city, blindfolded, a city we have no familiarity with, and all you've got is the clothes on your back, and you just wanna get home. Well, what do you do? Wouldn't it be great in that situation if we had a map? I mean, wouldn't it be even better if we had a GPS? Yeah, I agree. And I assure you, we are not the first people to struggle with getting lost, whether mentally, physically, or spiritually. So let's get lost in scripture for a while and see what God has to say about getting lost. And then we'll come back to this thought experiment. So we're gonna jump in at verse 19 in our passage and learn what God's word has for us today. Now, today's main question is why the law? So my first point today is why the law? The law reveals sin. Now, in order to understand this, we first need to understand the Judaizers. This was a group of Jews who were telling the church of Galatia that in order to be right with God, the Galatians needed to get circumcised and to follow the laws of the Torah, just like the Judaizers were doing. Now, Paul cracks down on this pretty hard, and he starts by asking the Galatians this rhetorical question, why the law? Now, Paul's been arguing in chapter 3 that God's blessings come by grace through faith and not a result of the law. Now, so far, he's appealed to experience, to scripture, and to daily life to prove to us that justification and the Holy Spirit come through a promise. But if everything God has to offer us comes through a promise, then what's the point of the law? Is it superfluous? Good question, friends. Now, rest assured that everything in God's world has a place in God's plan. He uses everything, even our choices of sin. Now, in the first place, the law reveals sin. Verse 19 says that, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now, first, the word transgressions means a crossing of a legal boundary or breaking of a specific law against God. Now, second, we know that the law came after the promise to Abraham. 
some, I mean, more than 400 years after, which means that it was not added to the promise in, in like a, a combination requirement sense uh, because the promise itself is unilateral, top down, and unending. It's from God to us and requires absolutely nothing from us. See, God keeps his promises, but the law was added in the sense that it, it was always a part of God's plan for Israel. We just didn't know it until he gave it to us. Now, what does it mean that the law was added because of transgressions? Well, friends, I think that God rarely has just one purpose or intent or motive for anything that he does. I think it's more probably like an infinite amount of reasons. He does the things he does, and we can only see a small number of them. Sometimes I'll get like really lucky and I can see like two or three meanings for something. But dude, God is infinite. So the question is, which purpose did he intend to be the first understood here in this passage? Well, there's some debate among scholars as to which exactly is the original intent, but there's two main theories. One of the options is that the law was added to the promise in order to deal with bad behavior, either through its system of sacrifices or through its system of penalties for wrongdoing. Now, either way, because the law has consequences, it has the ability to control transgressions. Uh, it, it shows the differences between right and wrong, and it, it also shows us what, how transgressors should be punished, which helps to restrain evil uh, through fear of the consequences. So really, it, it kind of teaches behavior modification, but not necessarily heart change. Now, it does help to deter sin somewhat. Um, and so the power of the law and government could be that it helps to restrain evil. And perhaps God gave the law to his people to help them avoid sin. The other option, however, is, is far more likely in my opinion. And that's the flip side of the law restraining transgressions. See, while, while the law does sometimes uh, help to deter sin, I don't think that God gave the law to Moses in order to decrease transgressions, but instead to increase them. See, the law exposes sin for what it truly is, a crossing of a legal boundary or breaking of a specific law against God. See, in summary, it exposes our violations of God's holy standard. You see, in our rebellious nature, the law has this way of making us want to break it. I mean, have you ever had someone tell you you couldn't do something you really wanted to do? Like, have you ever felt that pang of desire to do it anyway? So, in essence, the law shows you that you're lost, but you cannot get to where you need or want to be. It's like having a map, but not knowing where you're at on the map. Don't know your starting point. And so to find out where you're on the map, you really need something closer to a GPS. See, Paul explained it this way in Romans 7, 7. Uh, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, no sooner did Paul learn what sin was that he wanted to try it. 
He writes in Romans 5.20a, now the law came in to increase the trespass. See, sometimes the law serves as a stimulus to sin. One purpose of the law then is, is provocative, not preventative. Rather than preventing transgressions, the law actually provokes our rebellious natures to sin. Romans 3.20 tells us, for by works of the law, no man, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, God didn't give the law to us to reveal how we were to be justified, as the Judaizers suggested. The law is not our GPS. But instead, he gave it to us in order to disclose the evil power of sin and its control over our lives. See, the law opens our eyes to how sinful we really are. Y'all, our nature loves sin. And if you think yours doesn't, you are deceiving yourself, friend. Martin Luther phrased it this way. The true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, hell, judgment, and consequently the well-deserved wrath of God. My friends, this law is a good thing. See, when the scripture says that the law was added, what it literally means in, in the original Greek text is that the law came in by a side road. See, side roads feed into main roads, right? So the law here feeds into the main road, which is the promise to Abraham. Thus, the law is essentially the on-ramp to the gospel highway. Now, this is because the more we know the law, the more we see our own sin. We see our shortcomings, our failures to fulfill the law. The more we see our own failure to please God or to fulfill the law, the more we realize our own need for a savior to save us from ourselves. Friends, it was not until I saw and experienced my own depravity, the evil thoughts and feelings and urges inside of me, my inability to fulfill God's moral law, that I was able to recognize where I was. I, I need someone to save me because I messed up. But once I recognized that, my own sin, I was able to see just how much I truly needed a savior. And now I'm here, still learning. So the law's job is to reveal my sin to me, to show me that I am lost. And only then can I understand where I currently stand. So going back to our thought experiment from the beginning, the law revealing our sin is what tells us where we're currently located in our relationship with God. We are lost. We might have a map, but we definitely don't have a GPS to get ourselves home. Now, let's talk about my second point, and that is why the law, the law has its limits. Now, if the law's first use 
was to reveal our sin by increasing transgressions, then its second use is to restrain evil. So the ceremonies, the curses, the sacrifices that were all part of the law are all meant to be temporary, a stepping stone, if you will. However, the moral law that's instilled in all of us that goes back to the first man, Adam, it's meant to be eternal because it springs from the very character and nature of God himself. See, the moral law is how Adam and Eve knew they had sinned. It's how Cain knew he had sinned. And since there was no law yet back then. So back to verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, the offspring here is a singular word referring to the Proto-Evangelion, which is the promised offspring from Genesis 3.15 that Tyson mentioned last week. Now, the use of the word until here means that when the son came, the work of the law was finished. The time period for it to reveal sin and increase transgression for the Jews lasted only from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. The law had another limitation as well, and, and that was the way in which it was delivered. See, the rest of the verse 19 and 20 of our Galatians passage uh, tells us that the law was put into place um, by angels, uh, sorry, through angels by an intermediary. Now, the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So let's just pause here a minute. According to scholars, this is one of the most confusing passages in the entire Bible. In fact, there are over 400 different scholarly opinions on what exactly this passage could mean. But one of the most likely candidates is that the emphasis here is on the fact that the law came from God but through angels and through Moses before it got to the people. Whereas the promise uh, that God gave to Abraham was directly from God to Abraham. Abraham represented the people. And so therefore the promise from God holds a lot more weight because it's unilateral and unending. And it is straight from the, God of, straight from the mouth of God to mankind. Now, the speculation here is that the Judaizers were just totally enamored at the fact that the law had came through angels and used that to pump up and elevate the reputation of angels within the society. But Paul wanted to bust that theory because angels cannot stack up to a unilateral promise directly from God himself. God keeps his promises always, nor would angels want to. We do know that in verse 20, where it says, but God is one, is a hyperlink back to an Old Testament prayer called the Shema. Now, this was a huge part of Jewish culture. There, this prayer would have been prayed religiously twice a day, like clockwork. And it would have been somewhat equivalent to what we call the Lord's Prayer. The Shema starts in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your Lord. You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The Shema is all about learning to listen to and love God, for doing so brings life. And the implication is that the Galatians should be chasing a relationship with the one true God, not angels. Which brings me to my third point. Why the law? The law cannot give life. Now throughout this chapter, Paul is drawing a sharp contrast between working the law versus trusting in the promise. See, working the law would be like running all around from place to place when you're lost, trying to figure out where you're at, but not actually asking anyone. Because of this contrast he's been making, he then asks the next logical question in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. This is classic Paul here, y'all. See, Paul is a critical thinker. He's been trained in all the best schools, by all the best people, and he's been trained in all the different methods of how to think. He knows that on first reading, you'd likely come to this conclusion. So he asks the question for the Galatians in order to meet them where they're at, like God does for us, and then immediately helps them to understand the folly of that perspective with his comment, certainly not, in verse 21. Now, this is to help them see that the law and the promise were not opposites or mutually exclusive. Instead, they had different purposes. Now, let me say that again, because I think so many people don't understand that. The law and the promises of God had different purposes. And unlike the promise, the law could not give us life. As verse 21 tells us, if it could have given life, then the promise would not have been necessary. In other words, if you could just magically look at a map and, and know exactly where you're at when you're lost, you wouldn't have need for a GPS. Now, remember, this is what the Judaizers were trying to teach, that righteousness would come by the working of the law. Part of the problem with that teaching is that Galatians 3.12 tells us that by... Um, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Which means that, referring back to Tommy's sermon analogy a couple weeks ago, if you're hanging over the edge of a cliff by a chain, and a single link in that chain breaks, you, my friend, are a goner. And the law works the same way. It helps to show you the way but if you're relying on it to support your eternity, friend, you're setting yourself up for failure because no one can keep the law. And no one, and, 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 and one of those links will definitely break. See, the law is, is kind of like chemotherapy. It, it's poison. It is an instrument of death. Now, it does help in the long term to make us better, but it tends to get much worse before it gets better. 
And this is, this is what the law does for us. The law makes us worse so that Christ can make us better. Paul describes this, this concept really well in, in Romans 7, verses 9 through 11. Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. This brings me to my fourth point. Why the law? The law drives us to faith. So in the beginning of our passage for today, uh, Paul sets out to explain the purpose of the law. And now we've arrived at verse 22, and he still hasn't completely answered the question. So far, he's talked more about what the law cannot do than what it can do, right? So the law cannot give life. It only reveals sin. It does not come directly from God, but instead through an intermediary. And it was not designed to last forever, nor will it. All right, let's, let's read verse 22 through 25. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, this is pretty cool to me. See, we see here that even in the law's apparent failure to bring life to us, it was still doing God's work. See, God uses everything to accomplish his will. He even uses our choices of sin. The law, the law was not only temporary, but it was also preparatory. See, it was leading the way to Christ for us. The, the law cannot justify, but it drives us to faith, which does justify. In, in verse 22, when it says, but the scripture, it means especially the law. So we've seen that the law revealed sin and increases our awareness of it so much that the entire world will be imprisoned by it. This is true for both Jew and Gentile alike, one having God's law from Moses and the other having God's written law in their hearts. See, Romans 2.14 says, for when Gentiles, that's you, friend, it's me, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. See, therefore, the entire world is under the law, convicted of sin, 
and captive to its guilt. The law, by making this clear declaration of every single person's depravity, performs a valuable public service, proving that it has a valuable place in God's rescue plan of salvation. Again, friends, the law is powerless to make you right with God. It cannot justify. It can only condemn. It cannot make righteous. It can only confine us to the imprisonment of sin. It can only show us our need for a GPS. Now, however, by showing us this, that it cannot save, the law helps us to look for a Savior who can save us. When you start looking for a way out of your bondage to sin, you'll discover there is but one escape. There is only one GPS. The tender mercies of our Heavenly Father. And this, my friend, is how the law leads to Christ. It cannot save you by itself, but your inability to follow the law will lead you exactly where you need to be. Saved by the grace of Jesus, the Christ, who took upon himself your sins and died on the cross for you. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the tree that Tommy was talking about a couple of weeks ago. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Martin Luther put it like this. The law, with its function, does contribute to justification, not because it justifies, but because it impels one to the promise of grace and makes it sweet and desirable. Therefore, we do not abolish the law, but we show its true functions and use. Namely, that it is a most useful servant impelling us to Christ. For its function and use is not only to disclose the sin and wrath of God, but also to drive us to Christ. And therefore, the, the principal purpose of the law in theology is to make men not better, but worse. That is to show them their sin, so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down and so may long for grace and for the blessed offspring. Friends, when the law is used properly, it's not opposed to the promise of God. In fact, the law and the promise are complementary to one another. The law points to the promise by, by showing that only faith can justify us. Habakkuk 2.4b says, But the righteous shall live by faith. Therefore, the law leads to Christ. And when we place our faith in Christ, we receive the inheritance of the promise as well. Now let's spend a minute and meditate on this reflection question. Do you allow the law of, law of God to lead you to faith in Christ alone for salvation? 
Or are you still trying to use works of righteousness to find your own way to God? Now, let me wrap up with this. Do you remember our thought experiment? What we need is a savior to act as our GPS, to not only let us know where we stand, but also to get us where we need to go. See, when we put our faith in Christ, we are unified with him. Christ is our GPS. He died in our place. And we rise in new life with him in his resurrection. And therefore, we are made full sons of God, just as Jesus Christ is. We no longer have to be a guardian, or we no longer have to have a guardian to take care of us. The temporary need for the laws is done away with, and we inherit the promises of Abraham for ourselves through our faith in Christ. The promise of God's blessing, the promise of righteousness, and the promise that our sin has been removed in Christ is now ours if we claim it. We are sons of God through faith. Friend, be lost no more. Will you have faith with me in the only one who can save you? Jesus the Christ. Now, will you pray with me? Father, I am humbled at the simplicity with which you have given us a way out of our sin. Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to bring your word today. I'm thankful for you sending Jesus. We ask that you give us more faith. We ask that you help us in our unbelief. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.